You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Water conservation is very important to me, and I bet it is to all of you. That's why I use High Sierra showerheads in my house, and I'm so happy to have them as a supporter of this podcast. High Sierra carries the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency and uses 40% less water than conventional low-flow showerheads. 40%. The model I have uses just a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, it's patented. Nobody else has it. It maximizes efficiency of water and energy use, but doesn't sacrifice on performance. You still get a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. I am a big beachgoer myself. I know many of you are, so I'm very happy to be joined for this episode by Dr. Rachel Noble. She is a professor at the Institute of Marine Sciences at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Rachel, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Travis. Good to be here. So we are in the midst of beach season now in, in June, and everybody's out there uh, going to the beach, enjoying themselves. Uh, really interested to talk to you about monitoring beach water quality and what some of the concerns are and challenges and ways to more effectively test. Um, what are some of the typical problems with beach water quality that are a concern for swimmers? Well, we have the benefit of living in a country that has invested a lot of money into sewage infrastructure. So I can thankfully say that sewage, um, which actually poses a problem in a lot of other countries to beach water quality, is not one of our typical beach water quality problems. Um, so in this day and age, um, stormwater actually is one of our biggest concerns. So swimming after a substantial rainfall, whether that is an afternoon thunderstorm at the beach, you know, with a quick pulse of rain, um, or even after a slow drizzle that might last for two or three days, both of those are going to uh, create a situation where the stormwater flows along kind of streets and ditches and um, kind of pathways um, and even uh, picks up a lot of different contaminants along those areas, um, including both chemicals and microbial contaminants. And those flow um, from uh, the land-based sources all the way into uh, rivers, lakes, streams, and ultimately flow towards the ocean. Um, and so those tend to be some of our biggest concerns, and that's where we see some of our beach water quality problems. We do have sewage spills that happen here and there in across the country. No sewage system is going to be perfect. Um, sometimes they become overwhelmed with a certain uh, kind of condition, maybe a large storm event. Um, but generally, those tend to be short-lived, and we have good um, alert systems for making sure that people are aware if a sewage spill has taken place um, in an area where people recreate at beaches and so forth. Yeah. 
what kind of, I guess, health concerns are there with some of the runoff, some of these, you know, some of the things that could come off in stormwater and that swimmers could get exposed to? Well, um, a range of different things. So for chemical contaminants, you can have a range of different uh, chemicals such as pesticides, fertilizers, fungicides that can pose a risk to people of a range of different ages. Different people at beaches are going to ingest different amounts of water. If you really think about someone going to the beach and just having a sit, that's really not going to be a heavy exposure to any kind of contaminated beach water. But if you have a couple of children who are playing all day at the beach, as uh, many people probably have experienced, and if you also have a situation where people are boogie boarding, surfing, paddle boarding, kayaking, the ingestion of water can take on a whole other meeting. And many of us can remember, you know, somehow being completely um, submerged and maybe even pushed down by a wave and ingesting more water than we intended. Um, so secondarily, then the microbial contaminants are um, what we really work on. And those things are largely going to come from bacteria that live along the landscape, so bacteria that can be present in soils, um, and also fungus uh, that can be present in soils, although more rare. Um, but in particular, one of our biggest concerns is fecal contamination. So fecal contamination can come from birds, it can come from dogs, it can come from other pets, and it can also come from leaking sewage or septic systems that have not been properly maintained um, and upgraded. And so when you have a leak in a sewage system, when a storm comes, that material can actually be carried by the stormwater into the ocean. It's not technically a sewage spill because it's just coming out of a leaking pipe. But what happens is that makes, makes it so that the stormwater is carrying fecal contamination to an ocean beach that might not otherwise have arrived there. Mm. So that's one of our biggest concerns. Sure. Yeah. As a surfer myself, you know, I've always paid close attention to this. There's, it's well known like in California where they don't have regular rain that a lot of these pollutants build up on the roadways and the streets and the sidewalks, and then they'll get a rainstorm. And the concerns are, I guess, especially acute there where you really, really want to stay out of the water for like 48 to 72 hours after, after a storm. Um, That's right. So how has beach water quality historically been monitored and then reported for public health considerations? So historically, EPA has handed down recommendations to the states, territories, and uh, tribal nations. Um, and by doing that, they recommend a specific set of water quality tests that are essentially EPA approved. And those tests that are EPA approved allow you to determine if a water body is safe by determining the concentration of a certain type of bacteria in the water and if that number of bacteria is over a threshold that is equivalent to some level of risk in a person of getting sick, that beach is closed. If the number determined from that water sample is under that threshold, the beach remains open. And in a lot of places in the United States, we have quite good water quality and those, beach, those uh, bacterial numbers are quite low all of the time. Um, so the current tests that we rely on use either the bacteria E. coli, which some people might be actually um, comfortable or they might remember um, hearing of in relationship to the romaine lettuce recall. So E. coli mm -hmm. is a bacteria that it's, it's, just, it's found in fecal material. 
It can be found in human fecal material, but it's also found in the fecal material of dogs, birds, and uh, many uh, warm-blooded animals. So it's not specific only to people. It's just an indicator of the presence of fecal material. That E. coli test is used in fresh water because E. coli generally don't like salty water. So in beach waters, like in marine waters, we use a group of bacteria called Enterococcus. That's just a different group of bacteria that's also found in fecal material. So the numbers of those bacteria would be related to other pathogens that might make you sick. So the important thing is that historically, we've used these bacteria that are called indicators. So they indicate the presence or the potential for the presence of other bacteria and viruses that could make you sick, but they generally are not the bacteria that actually make you sick. So the enterococcus is found in the fecal material of warm-blooded animals once again, um, and it's a test that's used in estuaries and ocean beaches and so forth. And it's important to remember that is as indicators, these E. coli and enterococcus bacteria, they're not perfect. When the concentrations of them are high, you can expect that maybe there are other pathogens found in the water that you might be recreating in that you need to be concerned about. But it is not always necessarily true that when the E. coli numbers or the enterococcus numbers are low, that the beach is safe for recreation. And that's because, as people well know now with COVID, um, viruses can be an important um, source of illness. Now, important to be clear that coronavirus is not a risk at our beaches but you can have other viruses that are um, important for us to study in addition to these indicator bacteria. And so recently, historically, EPA have used or recommended these other indicator viruses that they're starting to use for beach water quality testing, but these have not been fully put in place yet for beach testing, but we're expecting those to come online in the coming years. So right now, just as a quick review, we use these E. coli and Enterococcus bacteria as our indicators that tell us whether a beach is open or closed. Hmm. I guess one of the challenges with the historic testing for beach water quality is the turnaround time. You know, the, the right. amount of time from when a test is taken to you get a result to you can get an alert out to the public that there could be a concern. Um, obviously, the shorter that time turnaround is, the better for public health concerns. Um, so could you talk about maybe how long it has traditionally taken as a great segue into your work to speed that up? Yeah, you know, really, actually, since the early 1900s, we've been using bacterial tests that take somewhere between 18 uh, to 48 and sometimes even 96 hours to complete. That means to get a result, that means to, you need to go to the beach today, and tomorrow you might see a sign-up for the trip that you took to the hmm. beach today. You also could have to wait a few days for that result to be verified, and it could take even longer from that. So if you go to the beach and go for a swim today, if you were to get sick from swimming at the beach due to contaminated water, the results for any test that, you, um, that were done that day would be available tomorrow as you're lying in bed. So this is an obvious disconnect and it's a problem that needs to be fixed. Now we don't have immediate tests for bacteria. They generally don't exist. We're actually working on it, but we don't have a one minute or two minute test. 
So, but what we want to do is we want to get these results for a beach sample. If I want to go to the beach uh, at 10 o'clock morning, 10 o'clock in the morning tomorrow, I'd love to have a beach that's been tested maybe at 8 a.m. And then the results may be made available at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. as I'm driving there or as I'm on my way. So around 2005, um, our laboratory started using and developing uh, these new rapid tests that actually use uh, that called quantitative PCR, which many people are familiar with now, very similar to the test that's mm. done for um, COVID-19 and for other viruses when you go to the doctor. But in this case, the rapid tests were adapted to test for that those bacteria that I just told you about, that E. coli and Enterococcus. And these tests were um, able to get a result in about one to two hours. So um, as you suggested, in 2012, the EPA approved some of these rapid tests for use by the states. But the problem is that many of the states are not using the more rapid tests now in 2021 because most states get a limited amount of funding to support their beach water quality programs. And the beach water quality testing that was developed, guess what, back in the 1900s, it's a little older and it's a little cheaper, but it's also a little bit more inaccurate. Um, and so there's a real need to get all of the states on board to switch to the more rapid technology, but it, re it requires a little bit of a capital investment because you have to buy the machine to actually do the tests. Um, so it's a little bit more expensive to kind of get up and running um, right at the start. But what people in the federal government need to begin to realize is that we use we lose millions of dollars nationwide from people that have gotten sick at the beach each year. And they've, we're losing money due to medical costs, missed work costs, economic costs, and even the, the losses that are associated with a beach being closed where a person who owns a restaurant nearby, they have economic losses. So the rapid tests are more than just a, um, a little bit more expensive. They open up a whole door for making beach water quality testing more accurate. So really, we have a choice to reduce that, um, that, that burden of the waterborne illness. Um, and I believe that these rapid tests will be used more and more, especially now that people have a kind of a, a faith in these molecular um, analyses. Um, but it just has taken some time. Yeah. I, I didn't put that together in my own head, the, the PCR piece. I remember that from when I was at EPA, and this kind of happened 10, nine years ago. And then, like you said, with, with coronavirus, you hear about these the, the PCR rapid testing. So it's kind of the same technology, if you will. Um, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so if a beach community wants to adapt this more rapid form of testing... There's the investment. You mentioned the machine. What, but what generally kind of would they have to do to set up this process and this system? So this is a little bit more of a difficult question. Hmm. And although I call the audience to understand a little bit about the available the tests that are available, I'll use an example using COVID. Um, because there's a lot of different tests available now for COVID. There's ones at CVS, there's ones at Walgreens, there's ones done by LabCorp from your emergency room. There's ones that you can buy at Walmart. There's ones that you can buy actually on Amazon. It just keeps on going and going. And so make sure the very beginning here that we restate that COVID is not a risk at beaches. It's only an example that's being used to describe the testing 
um, and the beach communities adopting the testing. The problem is that if you don't have everyone doing the testing in a standardized way, that you have different results that are coming out. And so historically, like I said, states have been called upon to put into place the beach water quality testing that has handed down by the US EPA. If beach communities themselves adopt individual forms of testing, they might use one company over here and another beach community just up the road might use another company over here. And what happens is that you have a high number of communities that want to adopt this rapid testing, but they're actually getting slightly different results because all of the tests are designed with slight differences. And so we've actually had a number, a very high number of communities who have come to our lab and said, come to our beach. We want you to come test our beach on a regular basis and give us the results. But the problem is that we've hesitated with doing that because when the water quality is reported, if they in the end are using a test that's different from that being used by the state in which that community resides, you could have a beach open down the road um, that's being tested by a beach community using rapid testing. And you could have a beach just up the road being tested by a state laboratory and that beach could actually be under an advisory um, or, be, or have a completely different posting of its level of contamination. And so you have this stretch of beach that might be very, very close by, but you're actually getting different results because you're using slightly different tests. And so that discrepancy is actually what holds beach communities back from doing their individual testing because the communities themselves are not recognized as the entity by the EPA that's supposed to be managing beach water quality. But what I'm hoping is that beach communities will start to work more proactively with their states to go to the states to clamor for this rapid testing and they will want to be the beta testers. And that's the way to get this going for them to raise their hands and say, we want to be the place that is going to get this going. How can we help you? How can we collect the samples? How can we help you report the data? And that's exactly what's happened in California, Hawaii, Wisconsin, and Michigan, is that the towns and the counties, the municipalities have become more actively involved in the state water quality testing programs, and they've kind of built it from the ground up. Uh, but you don't want a lot of different entities doing the testing because you'll de end up with different results and that can be a little bit dangerous. Yeah. All right. Well, North Carolina was not on that list that you just gave and we're both at the, at the beach communities here in, uh, here in North Carolina. So we're going to, we're going to have to stir some things up and get that, get that going. It's a critical. I'd part love of to, our... I'd love to. Uh, there've been some communities in North Carolina that have been interested for more than a decade. I can safely say. Wow, incredible. So other than this this piece you just described, how else might water quality testing improve even further, especially from a, a scientific perspective? I mean, will we ever get that like almost instant test result? Um, what, what else is out there kind of from a, a scientific uh, point of view? Well, I love this question because we're actively working on this. We actually have a collaboration going with a colleague of mine at Duke University. We started out using drones to try to track stormwater and to track contamination um, along our beaches. And what we ended up determining was that a drone wasn't really sensitive enough to track some of these plumes of material that were coming off of storms. 
But what we designed was an autonomous boat and the boat's able to really, really carefully, but without a person on it, it's a, it's an autonomous boat. So it's uh, just complete remote control. It's armed with the ability to um, understand the dissolved oxygen, the temperature, the salinity, and some of the other um, contaminant um, responses in the water. And so what we're doing is we're deploying these boats out in a situation where we can go back and forth across a beach or across an estuary and track what's actually going on in real time. So reporting that data back to us and we're taking a look at it and when it rains, people can quickly identify with this in the summertime, the uh, water of most lakes, beaches, um, ocean beaches and so forth is warm, but the rainfall that's coming from the sky is actually a little bit cooler. And so when that rain hits the water, um, if you have a situation where a storm is impacting a beach or an area that people are using for recreation, you can actually use an infrared camera to understand what's going on with the input of stormwater into the system. It's very quick. It's very ephemeral. It's almost like it, it comes and then it disappears as that water gets mixed into the, the lake or the, um, or the ocean area. But the other thing that we can do is we can also track the bits of solids that we see, like the soils and the sediment that come into um, some of these areas by tracking, uh, by once again, using cameras and using turbidity sensors in the water. Um, and so we're really, really interested in using this as a tool. You don't need to put a graduate student out there um, to stand in the water. You can use, you can do it remotely um, and we can even uh, download the data in real time and see what's going on with the system um, from back in a laboratory. Um, so you could see a situation where you, um, could uh, know in real time as things are happening and it would allow you to understand even if you don't measure what's going on with all storms by using an autonomous system to understand some storms you would be able to get a better idea of how long you said you said 24 to 48 or 72 hours after a storm but we actually don't really know what the number is of how long you need to be concerned about a storm event um, if you're a surfer and so the answer to that question lies in being able to use these autonomous systems to actually define exactly what that window of time is so that we don't shut the beach down an overly long time, but we want to make sure to shut it down long enough that the um, contamination has had an opportunity to either by, be diluted or um, to move away from an area where people are recreating. The power of technology. I love it. Uh, drones and autonomous vehicles uh, popping up in our lives everywhere here. Um, lastly, I just wanted to ask where people can find information about water quality at the beach they visit. Where, where should they go if they want to kind of get the, the latest test results and see what's happening? Well, all of the states that I've worked with, and I believe all of the states these days have websites that will show you the water quality of your favorite beaches, whether those be beaches that are along rivers, uh, lakes, um, or um, estuaries, or an open ocean beach. And so by Googling, I was able to find many of them today before talking to you by typing in the name of the state and beach water quality into Google. And most of the time that would bring me up to an, uh, um, an interactive uh, system where I could either uh, use a map to drop into a location or I could type in a name to um, a system that would allow me to see, um, you know, kind of the, you know, if somebody wanted to see what the water quality is at Huntington Beach, California, that's a really famous one, Surf City, USA. 
Um, so you would be able to find that by going to the California uh, Beach Water Quality webpage. There are also some really great um, kind of amalgamations of water quality work that are being uh, created by nonprofit organizations like Heal the Bay, who creates the beach report card for, um, for California beaches. The Surfrider Foundation has some good information in a range of locations. And uh, NRDC each year produces a, um, um, a document called Testing the Waters that tells you a little bit about the water quality of your state and really how it stacks up against other states and how well your state is doing in terms of monitoring. So all of those things are available. So you can see kind of like historical performance. And in that particular case, you would get a chance to see um, if your favorite beach has actually gotten better in terms of its water quality or maybe worse. I hope not. Um, but you can see kind of the history behind some of the locations that you might be concerned about. Yeah. I know uh, one thing I've used myself in the past also is Swim Guide, uh, an app mm -hmm. that the Waterkeeper Alliance, they put out a lot of test results. And I think they also pull maybe from from different test results, the local and state level and, and populate beaches uh, that way and get lots of good info too. Well, uh, Rachel, I appreciate all of this information and the work to uh, better inform uh, you know, our decisions when we go to the beach and know how that water quality is. So thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you very much. I'm excited now to go to the beach and take a dive in, and I hope that everyone else will be too. It's summer. Let's do it. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit Waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.